Pray with me. Father, today we come looking not at our circumstances, looking not at the issues that face us, looking not at the things that we're trudging through, but we turn our eyes towards you. You are worthy of our attention. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our honor. And we give you today all the glory. As we enter into opening your word, guide our steps, I pray. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, grab a seat real quick. Thank you, worship team. I appreciate you more than anybody. What? Not more than anybody, but I appreciate them more than all y'all do. I get to work with them. Several years ago, I had a chance to run into a friend that I hadn't seen since college. Uh, it was just before, so going on five years, just before we had moved to Wyoming. And part of the reason I had lost track of my friend Christian is because she changed her name. And a lot of that had to do with the way she grew up. Um, abused Monday through Friday and in church on Sunday with her family singing the glories of Jesus. And that'll tear a kid apart. That'll rip anyone's heart and soul apart. And there came a point, and I, it was after college, so I didn't know, that she decided to change her name. She was getting married, and she changed her name to Daisy, which I thought was interesting, Daisy Rain, because it was a sign for her of new life, new beginnings. And there came a point around this time that we had a discussion about the word Christian, the label Christian. And we agreed to disagree at some level and agreed on some things. A lot of things have been done in the name of Christian over the years that nobody would look at and say is godly. And it wasn't that we needed to dispense with it. My point was maybe we need to redeem the term. Maybe we need to take it back. Because when you can have anything be Christian, my t-shirt's Christian, my dog's Christian, my, you start Googling things, you'll find, up, well, find out all sorts of crazy, but that goes with most things. So today we're talking about brand identity. Some of you may know exactly what that is. Some of you may not care or have a clue or really, but we're going to dive into it anyway. So roll with me for a minute. I had a graphic design and print shop for several years and had the opportunity to help people create and form and recreate and reform their identities and to help them learn how to manage it. Because one of the things you quickly find out is you can do all sorts of things in the name of something, but if you aren't careful, it'll twist. And that's certainly what happened to my friend, Daisy. So, brand identity. A brand is a product, a service, a concept that somebody has taken the time and effort to publicly try to distinguish it from all the other products or services or concepts that are in the same space. And that, that way they can communicate it, they can market it, they can 
make money generally. It's a, it's a commercial thing. In other words, we're applying a label to a product or a service, to a concept. Elements would include the name, the logo, the colors, slogans, commercials, all sorts of things to build a brand identity. Elements for McDonald's, for example, they use red and yellow. You can identify a McDonald's from every freeway, and they do that on purpose. Somehow, children at the age of two can say McDonald's. They're not going to say Burger King for another 12 years, but they're going to get McDonald's and Nuggies, whatever that is. Never could understand what part of the chicken was the Nuggets, but that's me. Now, in terms of brand management, McDonald's isn't going to change their red and yellow to pink for October to commemorate Breast Cancer Awareness Month. They're going to manage their colors, their brand. Companies develop brands, but it's actually you and me, consumers, the people, that define the brand, that build the brand. As a company, your goal is to present your brand in such a way that it is the hero, hence the hero. You want it to be the answer. When somebody's hungry, you want to be their answer. When somebody needs something, you want to be the answer. The concept is product, whatever it is, it's going to be here to save the day. And that's the intention, but it doesn't always go that way. Ultimately, it's the way that people perceive a brand that defines it. Make sense? It's how you see it. McDonald's using red and yellow. Colors have a purpose, and it makes it easy to recognize, but that doesn't define your perception of McDonald's or the taste of their food. Lots of people use red and yellow. in and out Sonic, Denny's, Lay's Potato Chips, Lipton Tea, Pirelli Tires, Shell, Gasoline. They all use red and yellow. Hopefully, you're able to identify what's what before you go to lunch. <laughs> Today, I want to lay out a specific challenge to church people. All you church people. Now, just because you're in a church doesn't mean you're willing to apply the label to yourself, church people. I get that. Some of us have maybe never been church people. Some of us maybe were once upon a time church people, and we are no longer church people. But this challenge today is for church people with the idea that it'll challenge you, and maybe for some of those who are looking in from the doorstep, It'll help you understand maybe why you're no longer church people or why you're not yet church people. If you were raised in a church like I was in the church, early on you learned this. Out of everything, you learned very quickly that becoming a Christian is easy. The price has already been paid. There's very little requirements on our part. It costs virtually nothing. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We simply received the free gift of salvation and forgiveness. We put our faith in Jesus and we call ourselves Christian. Becoming a Christian is easy. But when you open up the Gospels or when you read the New Testament or the letters of Paul or any of the Bible, you don't read anything about anybody becoming a Christian. First century Christians didn't call themselves Christians either. That's what non-Christians called Christians. In fact, it wasn't necessarily a great term. It was probably a slur and insult to put down. It's probably derogatory. 
Christian, the term. This wasn't a label like being American or Jewish. It actually suggested a way of life, as if you were a gym person. Um, I don't know, obviously, a whole lot of gym persons. I know a lot of chefs. <laughs> the term actually only shows up three times in the Bible. Well, that's interesting. Luke, who described the events that surrounded the first time people were ever called Christians, he actually described all of the events that happened in the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. He documents the first time that this appears in history. And it happened in the city of Antioch. Now, so you know, Antioch was one of the three largest cities in Rome. This was a big metropolis. This wasn't some little backwater town like Nazareth or something. Uh, Josephus described it. This was, there's actually two Antiochs. This was the Antioch of Syria that we're talking about for all of you who care. Okay, for both of you who, yeah. Here's the thing. In telling us how the label originated, he also tells us, Luke clarifies what it meant, or at least what it meant back then. Maybe not so much what it means to us good modern church people. Here's what Luke wrote. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So this raises a question. Who were the disciples? Now, just to be clear, this isn't the 12 apostles that we're talking about. Disciples was actually a much broader group. These were the people who followed Jesus. This was everybody. They called themselves disciples. Any good rabbi, philosopher, teacher had disciples. It meant students. It meant people who would choose to learn from that person and apply what they taught and Disciples was a very, it wasn't a church word at all. So in the Gospels, the term disciple, I got notes, otherwise we're going to be here, refers to Jesus' followers, people who publicly associated with Jesus before the crucifixion and who applied his teachings and followed his direction after the resurrection. And one of the reasons we think Christian itself may have been a derogatory term is because first century followers of Jesus were talked about as being part of a cult. They used the word sect. It was, they were part of a Nazarene sect. And the reason it was a Nazarene sect is because Jesus was in fact from Nazareth. So they followed this Nazarene teacher and it was a way to put a label on someone and identify and brand them. But there was something unusual and strange about these people. And calling them disciples, well, everybody had disciples. That was, that was like saying tires. Whether you have Michelin or Pirelli, uh, that's a little more specific. Everybody had disciples. If you were a teacher, a rabbi, a philosopher, you had disciples. So they couldn't just call them disciples. So they came up with a term. They wanted to label them. They wanted to put them in a little pigeonhole, in a little box. They called them Christians. And this is challenging. For all of us, this is challenging for me. I'm hoping it's going to twink you a little bit and challenge you up on this too because we might be comfortable with claiming the badge, claiming the title of Christian in the way we modern folks use the term, us good church people. But here's a question I want us to wrestle with today. It's easy to become a Christian. It's easy to label ourselves Christian. But are we 
are you? Am I a Jesus follower? Are we following or are we just believing in? Am I following Jesus' example or am I just trying to be a good example? This is a terrifying question. Here's why. I can define and redefine the term Christian until I'm fine. And you can define and redefine the term Christian until you're fine. And we can all, all over the world, define and redefine the term Christian until we're just fine with it. Because the term Christian isn't defined by Jesus or anybody else in the Bible. There's no clear definition. So we can make it whatever we want. The Jesus follower? Ooh, that doesn't really need a whole lot of clarification at all. That doesn't need a whole lot of definition. Becoming a Christian is easy. It won't cost you nothing. Following Jesus will always cost us something. Jesus came to earth to reverse the order of things, the way things were rolling, the way things had gone. He came to reverse those things. He came to establish a new order, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So to follow Jesus both then and now basically means going against the flow. It's to be countercultural. To some extent, Jesus made this clear, very clear, right out of the gate. In his most famous, most quoted, most well-known, perhaps most least followed sermon, we know it as the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because he was actually standing on a mountain. (laughs) Here's how it happened. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside, there you go, and sat down. His disciples gathered around him. He began to teach them. Now, disciples, not just 12 apostles, a crowd. And they had no idea what they were about to hear. They had no idea of the event they were at. They're about to hear the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine? Now, back in 1984, yes. Back in 1984, I had a chance and took the chance to see Frank Sinatra backed by Buddy Rich and his orchestra. You may not know. You probably don't care, but some of you will recognize those names. Buddy Rich was a drummer. He had an orchestra. They had actually worked together years ago in the 40s, started out working with Tommy Dorsey and his band, um, was where they first got together, and they were actually playing together in Costa Mesa in July, summer, 1984, and we decided, my buddies. Jeff and and Danny and Mark and I decided, the four of us, were going to go see Frankie. Well, Danny's mom, Mrs. Poya, she was our church organist. She was Italian through and through, and when she heard we were going to go see Frank Sinatra, she suggested. If you can imagine an Italian mother suggesting... We were expected to be there dressed up for her house for dinner before we went. She was cooking. If you're going to see Frankie, I'm cooking dinner, she said. And she spent the entire day making pasta from hand. She made stuffed shells. She had a sauce that was off the chain. She had cannolis. We were so fat and, I mean, well, I used to just be skinny. 
but I ate like I do. So, and then we went to see Frank. And Buddy Rich opens for him, and they had just finished their concert for America's down in, I think it was Dominican Republic or somewhere, and so he had uh, this whole uh, set worked out that had to do with West Side Story, my second favorite musical, and he played the Sharks and the Jets, and the whole anthem, it was amazing, and Frank comes on and takes the stage, chairman of the board, he just ripped the night apart. He sang uh, from Guys and Dolls, Luck Be a Lady, uh, my favorite musical. He sang, uh, he, he closed with My Way, he sang an amazing rendition, uh, rendition of How Do You Keep the Music Playing, another all-time favorite song. He sang Fly Me to the Moon. It was an amazing night. There was this old couple standing next to us. We were on the grass because we were poor students. <clears throat> there was this old, well, they're probably young at this age, but they were sitting there snogging and going, going to town on this bottle of wine and just having a great time dancing to the songs. And everybody, it was a party. Everybody was enjoying it. And nobody had an idea that within three years, Buddy would have passed. And within another 10 years, Frank would have had his last concert. It was a moment in time. It was a phenomenal night that I'll never forget. But these people, these people were at the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine? This is the sermon that changed Western civilization, spun it on its head. This is the sermon, the sayings, the things that Jesus taught that turned everything upside down, that has impacted every culture ever since, forever and ever. The sermon, on, and they had no clue. Kind of like a bunch of 20-year-olds going to see Frank Sinatra and Buddy Rich. Had no clue. We were just out for a good time. Had no idea that this was one of the last moments that they would ever be in full form together on a phenomenal night. These guys were at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus stands up in front of this huge crowd, his disciples, and he begins to preach. We're not going to go into it all, but the, the, the cliff notes, because that's how I did school. Love your enemies. Give away your stuff. When someone asks for a little, give them a lot. When someone wants to borrow from you, let them borrow. Don't even ask for a bag. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Bluster those who cursed you. Oh, that's fun. Stop getting wound up about the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and deal with the lumber that you can't apparently get out of your own eye. And this, you can't make things right with God until you make things right with the people around you. Ooh, ouch. You can't have peace with God if you don't have peace with your family. Okay, that one hurts. And this one, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Not anymore. Not in my kingdom. It was epic, it was disturbing, it was all the things, and Jesus literally turned their entire value system up on its head and kicked them all to the curb. Then he read, you can read this, he drops the mic, he walks down the mountain and heads for Capernaum. <laughs> Matthew wrote it this way, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, and I just gave you the summary. When he had finished, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Not as their teachers of the law. And when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. It was like a street party. Nothing like this had happened before. Not in their villages, not in their lifetime. 
There was something different about this Jesus. He spoke as one who had authority. You've heard it said, but I say, whoa, that's kind of taking the reins of the horse and turning its head. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, this was the Messiah we've been waiting for. And right then, in the middle of the celebration, a man with leprosy shows up, and that's cool. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him, and the crowd kind of parts and steps back, and it's kind of a buzzkill. You know what I mean? Hey! Ooh. You don't want to get too close to the leper. You don't want to catch what he's got, because everyone knows what a leper is. That's a label we all know, even though leprosy doesn't really exist here and is really only found these days mostly in India and Brazil and Indonesia, some other places around the world. We all know what a leper is and we all know, dear God, stay away. Don't want to touch that, don't want to get to that, don't want to catch that. Even though it turns out that leprosy really isn't all that contagious and it can be treated and people can be cured from it, especially if they catch it early enough. You may not have known that about leprosy. Why? Because leprosy has had a branding campaign going on for well over 4,000 years. We know leprosy, at least we think we know leprosy. Oh, no, it's not eradicated from the world. It still exists. But it may not be what we thought because it has an identity that hasn't changed since ancient times. So this leper comes up and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you could make me clean. Now, Jesus had just finished teaching blessed are the poor and blessed are the poor in heart and blessed are those who mourn. They're going to be comforted. He just finished teaching all these things like any good preacher. He gets up on Sunday morning and he's got lots to say, but what's he going to do? This is a question. What's he going to do? Because that was a whole bunch of good hashtags and t-shirt slogans and and things that you would send in a Christmas card to your neighbor, love your enemy. <clears throat> but Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man and said, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And the crowd goes wild. This guy, this Jesus, this is amazing. He's actually doing what he said he would. He actually is doing what he said he told us to do, because that's a whole different matter. He's actually going to live out these extraordinary values that don't really make any sense and probably don't apply to our world, but he's going to do it anyway. And here's his first example. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, and in a twist that we don't understand, somebody else comes up to Jesus and the mood of the crowd completely changes. It goes from celebrating to, oh, now what? And it's lost on us. What happens next? Completely lost on us because this took place in a time and a culture that we don't live in. This took place in, a, in, a, in an area with a people that we really, we, look, we peek in the windows at, but we really don't understand this. And it, it's crazy because Matthew doesn't even bother explaining it in the Gospels. Why? Because the folks who witnessed it didn't need any explanation. And the folks who heard about it later, they weren't going to need any explanation. Even the, the, the audience that Matthew wrote to that would be reading this, they wouldn't need any explanation because they 
lived this. They felt it. So maybe this will help you understand it better. Michael earlier referred to a teenage boy. So imagine a teenage boy. 15, 16, 17, he's down in the basement. He's cuddling with his girlfriend in her basement. And all of a sudden, the lights pop on, and her dad's standing there. Imagine him telling this story the next day to his buddies. Okay? His friends have, they've all got the same question, and it isn't, so, Joe, how did you feel in that moment? They don't need to ask that. They know how he felt. This isn't a football game. The question they all have is, then what happened? What happened next? The Jewish people here, they didn't need to know how anybody felt. They knew how to feel. Everybody felt the same feels in the moment because everybody knew they wanted to know what happened next. Here's what happened to set it up. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came up to him asking for help. And the world stood still. Now, it's lost on us. But everything in that moment in this place stood still because this was beyond uncomfortable. This was way past awkward. Frankly, it was rude. Love your enemy. Ooh, that's a good hashtag. Do for others. Go the extra mile. That might make a cute T-shirt for your baby to wear. But certainly those pithy one-liners don't apply here and now, right? Healing sick Jewish people, that's one thing, but this is a whole other thing. Some historical context might help here, because we don't get, we don't feel the intensity or the tension that was going on right there in that moment, but everyone in Matthew's audience did. About 100 years earlier from this moment, General Pompey had rolled in from Rome. He entered the city of Jerusalem and the Holy of Holies In the temple, he just decided to give himself a self-guided tour. Pompey was curious to see what this Jewish God was all about, that he'd heard so much about. This Jewish God that was so easily offended. This guy who considered him way too good to be part of a pantheon of other gods. A God who was so good he claimed to be the only God. We got to see this guy. And Pompey just rolled right in. To the place you never went, the place that only the high priest went, the holiest of holy place with that over-engineered curtain that was hanging top to bottom that you couldn't just stumble through. He looks in, he walks around, he's disappointed. Pompey is, because there's no God. There's no idol. There's a golden table and a candlestick and about 2,000 talents of gold maybe. There's no God. He probably thought, these crazy Jews, they've got this massive, gorgeous, beautiful temple, but no God. What kind of a God, what good is a God that you can't see? He would have asked. Then he left. Well, (laughs) he left with a few thousand Jews in tow, and they called those slaves at the time. And he basically annexed Judea and Galilee into Rome, and They lost their independence again, the Galileans and Judeans, and they ended up having to pay taxes to a pagan Roman empire. Now, years later, another general shows up, Crassus, 
And this time he goes in, does the same thing, but he takes all the gold, all the temple taxes, whatever he could find. He just took them with us, uh, with him. 40 BC, Herod the Great was crowned king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. Of course, he wasn't a Jew, so that was offensive. And he's known for murdering multiple Jews and multiple rabbis, so that was offensive. And his son was the one who had John the Baptist executed, who was a folk hero of the working class. So people loved this guy just not very much. And then when Jesus was somewhere in his 20s, Rome commissioned Pontius Pilate to be the governor of Judea. Pilate is given credit for instituting a cute little thing called crucifixion to the Galilean and Judean countryside. He was constantly offending the Jews on purpose. He also stole money from the temple treasury. In fact, Pilate was so cruel, he actually got recalled back to Rome because he was too cruel, which is saying something for Rome. How violent do you got to be for Rome to call you back? The point's simply this. Anything, everything associated with Rome was tainted at the very least. There was just way too much history with them. But it gets worse. This isn't a common soldier. This is a centurion. Someone who made his living through violence. This is the guy asking Jewish people for help. Centurions, they obeyed without question. They obeyed without conscience. They didn't think twice. They were so brutal, they were known to discipline with flogging. Their own men, sometimes executing them for infractions. <clears throat> this is the guy. And if Brian branded a Roman wasn't enough, you got to keep in mind this guy was also a Gentile. Now, Jews were considered to be pretty racist at the time. They didn't associate with other people. You'd never let your son marry a non-Jewish girl. You certainly wouldn't let your daughter date a non-Jewish guy. Even the Apostle Peter openly admitted in Scripture that he had never stepped foot inside a Gentile home because to do, it would be unthinkable. That's what we're dealing with here, a centurion. So Jews hated outsiders and naturally, the non-Jews hated the Jews, too, because when people are racist towards you, you don't like them very much. I don't. So this is the context, a taste of this moment that this story takes place in, okay? This is the tension that fills the air outside Capernaum when a Roman centurion waltzes up and asks Jesus for a favor. Have you been there? In this way, have you been there when someone has asked you for a favor? We've all been there. In this way. What? You want a job recommendation? For me, you want a recommendation, a job recommendation. After how you treated our employees, after how you treated me, you want me to recommend you for a good paying job. What? You want to borrow money? No, no, no. You mean more money because we've already done this a couple of times and I've never seen a red cent from you. You want a second chance? Again, what would that make this? Your third second chance? How many second chances do you think I'm willing to give? Oh, you want to come home for Christmas. 
Have you forgotten how you treated our family last Christmas? Have you forgotten how you treated my mother last Christmas? And you want to come home? Oh, you want to stay with somebody for a while. You're out of sorts. Do you remember last time you stayed? It was three months. You didn't contribute to pay any of the bills. You never said thank you. You left without a word. Uh, without a word. We didn't know if you were here or gone or where. Have you been there? Have you been on the side of somebody coming up and asking for a favor when they didn't deserve anything? Are you kidding? We got way too much history for that. Here's something we have in common. Isn't it true that if I asked you to help a complete stranger, something that had never done anything to you or hurt you or anyone that you knew, someone that didn't look like or was related to someone that... If I asked you to help out a stranger, you'd do that. Feels good. We're following the golden rule. We're taking care of other people. If I asked you to help a perfect stranger, you'd probably be okay with that. You'd probably come to the table for that. That's easy. That feels good. But doing good for someone who hurt me, doing good for someone who hurt someone I love, that's a whole other thing. Becoming a Christian is easy. Salvation's free. Costs you nothing. Being a Jesus follower... Moving what's beyond expected, that's unnatural. In fact, it's almost supernatural, and that, of course, would be Jesus' point. Remember, Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you do good to only those who do good to you, so what? Everybody does that. Why should you get any credit? Everybody does that. That brand of love is commonplace. That brand of love keeps us locked behind our brands. That brand of love keeps us with our tribes. And you're not part of our tribe, thank you very much. So there they stand. There's Jesus. There's a centurion. There's a crowd. The question was, what's he going to do? Yeah, we know the words. We know what he preaches. But what's he going to do? What's he really going to do? And you can guess. You probably know. You may have read the story. But once we get to the end of the story, here's the rub. We've got a decision to make. I have a decision to make. You have a decision. We all, there's a decision that's going to trip us up. We've got to get past it. We have to decide after we hear the end of the story. Are we willing to follow Jesus or will we be content with simply being Christian? Scripture continues, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Wait, what? Your servant's suffering, and we're supposed to care. You who cause suffering for a living. We're supposed to be somehow concerned about someone who's now suffering that you care about? You who caused all of our... Rome, you represent Rome, they've all caused suffering for us for as long as we can remember. And now you want us, one of us, to relieve the suffering of someone who's important to you when you've never 
lifted a finger to help us. In fact, you've done the opposite of relieve suffering. You have caused our suffering. And, and let's be honest, Jesus could have taken it personally too. Thanks to you and your former emperor, my mother was forced to give birth to me in a stable. Which worked out well for Hallmark and the people who make those lawn ornaments. <laughs> but it was dangerous for my mother. But Jesus had come to introduce a new kind of kingdom, a new morality, a new ethic, a new way of seeing the world, and more importantly, a new way of seeing the people in the world. Whole new way. So to keep in line with his own teaching and to illustrate what he had just taught, Jesus chose to do good for someone whose brand identity represented an empire that had done a mansion that had done unimaginable harm to his nation, his people, his own family, and eventually the same empire that would oversee his own crucifixion. Jesus says to the centurion, okay. You want me to come heal him? Should I go to your house to heal him? And let's be honest, for the Jewish audience that was standing there, this was way too far. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve have you come under my roof. And everyone in the crowd at that point thought, huh, well, that's obvious. And in an extraordinary expression of faith, the centurion says this, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus, you and I aren't so different. I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. Like you, I tell this one go and he goes. I tell this one come and he comes. I tell this one do that and my servant and he does it. So no, I don't need you to come to my house. Just say the word, my servant will be healed. And then to the shock of the crowd, Jesus compliments, commends this centurion in front of all them for his great faith. And then he responds by saying, okay, go, it'll be done. Just as you believed it would. And now the crowd is stunned. Jesus spoke as one who had authority. They're not just stunned because he helped the guy. They're stunned because he had the audacity to say, okay, done. They're stunned because he's matching his words with his deeds. He's serious. Those aren't just hashtags. He literally expects us to do good for those who can't or won't help themselves or help us. He literally expects us to do good for those who don't look like us or live like us. He literally expects us to do good for people that don't even like us. It's no wonder we reduce our faith to a label, right? To a brand identity. It's no wonder that we're content to take some sermon notes and feel bad for a minute until we remember that we've got lunch coming, so squirrel. Because it's easier to be a Christian than a Jesus follower. It's easier to do good for a stranger than it is to do good for an offender. It's easier to do good for people who look 
like me, who think like me, who live like me, and who agree with me. (laughs) Don't nod your head yet. You're not agreeing with me yet. (laughs) It's easier to be a Christian than a Jesus follower. And if that's what we choose, okay. But you got to know, if that's what we choose, then we're going to continue to contribute to the challenges we're facing in our community, in our nation, in our world. I'll tell you why. If we don't choose to follow Jesus, then we'll be content to simply believe. Oh, we'll believe all the right things and... We'll believe that all men and women are created in the image of God. And we'll, create that, that we'll believe that everyone's created equal. And we'll believe that everybody has intrinsic worth and divinely assigned value. But if we haven't decided to follow Jesus, it all ends there. It ends with correct belief and brand management. If we don't decide to follow Jesus, we aren't going to act We won't act on what we claim to believe when it costs us something, and we certainly won't react when we see people who are treated unfairly, unjustly, unkindly. And here's the interesting thing. Apparently, Jesus saw this coming. Apparently, Jesus saw me coming, saw all of us coming. He seemed to anticipate a generation that would be content to know but not to do. In fact, Jesus reserved his final words and his harshest statements in the Sermon on the Mount for those people who would hear and not do, for those who would agree but not act, for those who are content to sit and listen and not at the appropriate times, like me with my wife, but not do something about it and refuse to follow. Here's the closing statement of Jesus most famous sermon. Ready? But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man. Everyone who heard the sermon and was perhaps moved by the sermon, everyone who even agreed with parts of the sermon, but when it comes down to real life and when it comes to those hard emotional moments that we all face from time to time, when we have to decide if we're going to follow through or not, the person who hears these words of mine refuses to put him into action is like a foolish man. Specifically, they're a fool. They're a fool because they have fooled themselves into thinking that they're better than they really are or that they somehow have favor with God that they don't really possess. It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Looked great. Riverfront property, beautiful home. You know how this ends, you remember. Rains came down. The streams rose. The winds blew. They beat against the house. And it fell with a great crash. So here's my invitation to you this morning. Let's not be content with just being Christian. Let's not settle for just Christian. Let's not think about think that our task on earth is simply to manage a brand identity. Let's follow. Let's certainly continue to do good for those who can't or won't do good for themselves. But let's also continue to do good and start doing good for those 
centurions that seem to keep showing up. Those people that have hurt us or someone we love, those people who we already have a costly history with. Those people who cause everything within us to recoil at the thought of leveraging our resources, our time, our reputation, our abilities for their good. Those people. Those centurions. And when they show up, let's remember this. Because this is the center, this is, the, this is at the center of our faith. This is the why we do behind the what we do. This is the why, this is why Jesus could say stuff like this and expect us to actually follow through and do it. This is what compelled followers after the resurrection to embrace this kingdom ethic so much that it actually transformed the empire of Rome until the empire began to follow. Let's remember this when confronted by the centurions in our own world, by those deadbeats and sinners and people who cost us the most. Paul writes in Romans, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet centurions, in that while we were yet deadbeats, in that while we were yet bankrupt, in that while we were yet beggars, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then he rose from the dead. And from the pages of the New Testament, he kind of looks over his shoulder at you and at me and at all of us, and he says, follow me. Follow me, and together we will establish, we will astonish the word with a brand of love that has the potential to change everything. It's easier to be a Christian than a Jesus follower, but here's the funny thing. Jesus never invited anyone to be a Christian. That's right. Jesus invited us to follow. So this opens in two stages, so just a little bit of instruction, the cellophane opens.